For those who are remaining here, let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 7. You will remember, I'm sure, if you were here last week, that we have been considering a, a rather lengthy section of Scripture, beginning in chapter 6. And this particular section is addressed to a man by the name of Stephen. And he is, as we said last week, spiritually speaking, a full measured man. He is a man who is full of the Holy Spirit. He is a man who is full of wisdom. He is a man, the text tells us, who is full of grace and full of power. And he will need every ounce of his fullness as he makes what will amount to his last stand before the high court of Israel. Like his Lord before him, he stands before these wicked men and he will ultimately pay with the cost of his life for his faithfulness. Stephen's message as we begin to look at it today in Acts 7 is not like the other sermons we've heard so far in the book of Acts. We've listened to Peter preach time and again, and every time Peter has proclaimed the gospel in terminology that we're familiar with and in a structure we're familiar with, or as he pointed to the sufferings of Christ and then to the resurrection of Christ, and then given a call to repentance and faith. This is not an evangelistic sermon in the pattern of Peter. There's no mention of the cross. There's no mention of the resurrection. There's no mention of Jesus by name. There's no overt call to repentance and faith. In fact, when we read through this, this will sound very strange to our ears in some ways. It will sound more like a Jewish history lesson, followed by a very blistering indictment against the council, the Sanhedrin. And as 21st century Americans, we read these things and we go, where did that punchline come from? How did he get from the history lesson to that? Well, it's because we're not hearing with Jewish ears and we need to learn to hear with Old Testament ears if you're going to understand how Stephen, like a good lawyer, is building his case and he will begin laying out this foundation piece by piece over the next couple of weeks and we will follow along as he does that. He is like a skilled prosecutor. He is going to carefully lay out the facts as he, as he increasingly draws the net and will ultimately hang a noose around the necks of these blind judges of Israel. It's easy to forget, frankly, when you're reading this, that Stephen is the one on trial. The tables get flipped very quickly. Stephen is on the offense. It's the defendant who proves to be the prosecutor. And he will lose his life by day's end. That is his earthly life. But he will depart the land of the dying to go to the land of the living. And in all of that, he is going to boldly bring his persecutors face to face with their sin and their impending judgment if they refuse to repent. And so the entire chapter really is a rebuttal to the charges that were levied against him. It's not merely 
Israel's history for the purpose of instructing the Sanhedrin. In fact, the Sanhedrin were the most studied people in Israel. They know everything that Stephen is saying, all the details. They know every bit of it. In fact, it had to come across in some ways as very condescending to them. And he will indict these men along two lines. And we need to keep these things before our eyes so that we we can remember as we go along what he's trying to accomplish. First, they had a very, very idolatrous fixation on the temple and with the land of Israel and with Jerusalem. And it's the temple that's in focus, in particular, throughout what all that Stephen will say in this chapter. It's, it's as though uh, God only dwelt in the holy place and in the holy land. In fact, they'll, they'll refer to the temple as this holy place. In their pride, you see, they assumed God's favor for the fact that they were Jews, for the fact that they resided in the Holy Land and in the city of Jerusalem, and they worshiped at the temple in particular. Secondly, not only did they have this wrong perspective of the temple, but they they had missed the point of the Mosaic law altogether. The fact is they did not listen to Moses and they did not listen to the law. They were lawbreakers, not law keepers. They had persecuted every prophet along the way who had come to demonstrate that they were lawbreakers. And worst of all, they killed the very son who was sent from God himself for their salvation, for the salvation of sinners. Look over with me to what comes to the, 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 the real punchline of this entire message, which is over in verse 51. He says to these men, this is where, it, this is where Stephen turns. He points the finger And he takes all of these passages that he's been working through and he he says to them, you men, stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not observe it. Those are the words that will get Stephen killed. He exposes Israel's long history of opposing God's plan and God's people. And this very powerful and stinging indictment against their rebellion and against their unbelief and against their apostasy, Stephen will will prosecute the Sanhedrin as the leaders of Israel, but it's the nation as a whole who is really under the spotlight here. 
And the ironic thing is he will use the Torah, the very Torah that they, they claim to uphold, he will use the word of God to do it. And he's going to make his case by expositing a bunch of Old Testament passages. And again, you can imagine this. Here he is standing before men who have given their entire lives in the study of the word of God. And he is going to take that very same word and he is going to give them insight into things that they have never seen before. And they're not going to react well to it. As I said earlier, they must have felt very condescended to in some ways. It's, it's a lot like it was with the blind man in John 9. Do you remember that? That they, they kept interrogating him, and every time he kept pointing to Christ. And, and, and at the end, while these men are under conviction and, and they had been bested by this ignorant blind man, they blast back at him at the end when they couldn't defeat him. You were born entirely in sins, and you're instructing us. This is the mindset, this is the heart that exists in these men. Beloved, you can have all kinds of knowledge about the Bible and yet have zero insight into it. This is evidence of that. Knowledge of the truth without faith profits nothing. Jesus said, you're like a foolish man who built your house on the sand. To know the word of God and not to do it, not to obey it, not to believe it, is fruitless. In fact, it's damning. Make no doubt about it. This is a very, very hard-hitting message right from the get-go. It will be building as he goes on, but it's hard-hitting from the start. This is, this is preaching that punches, and he's going to land a lot of blows. It is an arrow to the heart, and it is sand to the eyes to every single person who is there. And in the end, they will in mass rush on him to destroy him. And here's the thing. One of the things that Luke continues to point out. <laughs> you can silence Stephen. You can silence the messenger. But you cannot stop the gospel and its progress or the growth of the church. In fact, the more you persecute, the more you, you exponentially exacerbate the very thing you're trying to, to put down. Because it is this stoning followed by the persecution of a man named Saul who will become the apostle Paul by the grace of God. It is this persecution that will cause the, the, the Christians in Jerusalem to spill out into Judea and into Samaria and out into the uttermost parts of the earth. It's as if a, a bomb is going to go off and this is the fuse. Tertullian famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I like to tell the story. I used to teach up in Alta Dutch Flat Elementary School, and we, we had a forester come in, and he would, he would share with us about the, the local flora and fauna, and he took us out into this area, and he, 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 he said you know, people loved settling in this area because of all of the all of the. Douglas fir trees and the beautiful pines, but you know, there, there was one problem with the area of, of Alta Dutch Flat, and that is it had a lot of white pine, which is essentially garbage wood. It's, it's fruitless. It, it's no good for anything. So they decided, they had a brilliant idea. We know what we'll do. It would just be very easy. We'll just torch this white pine forest and, and replant the good stuff. 
The problem is, is that in, in burning the white pine, it's the very thing that sets those cones free to expel their seed. And they propagated white pine everywhere up there. That's the same thing that's going on here. It is the fires of persecution in Jerusalem that will spread the seed of the church far and wide. God is up to something, and he's up to something good. Well, I want to give you just a a five-part outline at the outset of all of this. We're only going to get to the first two points this morning, but I thought it might be helpful to break up this massive text into its respective parts. Stephen is going to mount his case along five lines of reasoning, five, if you will, pieces of evidence. First, the evidence concerning Abraham in verses 2 to 8. He will bring Abraham up, and he's got a point in that. And then he's going to give us the evidence concerning Joseph in verses 9 to 16. And then the evidence concerning Moses in verses 17 to 43. And then he will narrow down on the temple in verses 44 to 50, the evidence concerning the temple. And finally, fifthly, the indictment of the Sanhedrin and Israel in verses 51 to 53. You remember, don't you, where Stephen is at this point? Chapter 6 and verse 12 tells us that he has been accosted physically and he has been violently dragged before the Sanhedrin, Israel's high court, to answer for his preaching, to answer for his, his alleged blasphemy. And you'll remember that these 70 plus 1, these 71 men were seated in a semicircle like a horseshoe around in this, in this council room. And the, the accused would come and have to stand right there in the middle of this horseshoe to give an answer for what they were being accused of. It is there that Stephen stands And it is there that the high priest said, verse 1, are these things so? Now, the the high priest is Caiaphas. You remember him. You remember that he was the one who presided over the, the mock trial of Jesus and eventually the false conviction of Christ as a blasphemer. He's the same one who has put Peter and the apostles on trial and found them guilty. He's thrown them in jail. He's lashed them 39 times each and now Stephen stands before this wicked man and, and, and all the others. Stephen knows at the outset, this is not going to be a fair deal. And he asks Stephen, Caiaphas does, are these things so? And it's from there that Stephen begins his defense and he gives, first off, the evidence concerning Abraham. Let's look at it. Beginning in verse 2, we're just going to read as we go along. And he, that is Stephen, said, Hear me, brothers and fathers. He calls them to to listen, to, to tune in, to give him an ear. And he refers to them as brothers and fathers. He refers to them respectfully. And he, frankly, draws an association between himself and them. He speaks in familial terms. Here are my brethren as Jews and you, the, the, this group of 70 seated around him. He, he says to them, he calls them fathers. 
This is a Jewish man speaking to Jewish men. He's not defiant in attitude. We need to hear the tone of his voice at this point. But he's a man making a very direct and gracious appeal to his kinsmen according to the flesh. He is, he is not a brash man looking to alienate his hearers, but a truthful man calling them to sober self-reflection and examination. And they are very committed to Torah. And Stephen wants to make it clear that he too is very devoted to the word of God. You recall that that was one of the things that is in question here. He was accused in chapter 6 and verse 13 of speaking against this law. He's been charged with blasphemy and he wants to make certain that the Sanhedrin understands right up front I regard the word of God. And clearly he knew the word of God. And he had a sincere faith in the word of God. And he believed in the same God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. All of those names will show up in what he says this morning. And so Stephen begins where where Israel's story begins. He begins with Abraham, whom he calls again our father. He draws himself in with, with them, drawing upon their common heritage. And he says, the glory or the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Again, understand, he's not just reciting historical facts. Stephen refers to Yahweh right from the get-go as the God of glory. Now, that is a unique term. Just as God has many unique terms that refer to him throughout Scripture, this one is particularly unique because it only shows up once in the Old Testament, and it shows up in Psalm 29, which is this soaring, marvelous uh, uh, psalm of God's glory, his creative power, his unrivaled authority. These men click in right away. Stephen is saying, I believe in the same God you believe in. He is the God of unrivaled authority and majesty. Stephen has a very high view of God. He does not think blasphemous things of God. He is the God of glory. He is the sovereign creator. He is the authoritative lawgiver. He is the the mighty deliverer of Israel. He is the king of glory. All those things are in that psalm. Now, If you were here this morning, this answer will be easy for you. If you were not, it may be more challenging, but Jeff posed it. When when the Jews would think of the glory of God, what would they think of? Where would they go? What would they associate his glory with? Well, they would think of the Shekinah glory that would dwell in their midst, that visible manifest glory of God that that had dwelt among his people. And and where was that glory located? Well, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. That was the very reality for them, historically thinking back where God dwelt and dwelt in their midst. And in the thinking of this Sanhedrin, if you have the temple, you have God. But did they have God? Was the glory of God, that Shekinah glory, still dwelling in this, Herod's temple? The answer is no. The glory had left long ago. 
And yet these men gloried in that temple. And so right away and very intentionally, Stephen begins to lay out his case against any sense of of Jewish pride for being a people who are worthy of God dwelling in their midst. And it's impossible really to overstate the emphasis upon the temple. It's impossible to overstate it. You see, he is is confronting their assumption that God is with them because they were born Jews and since they dwell in the land and since they worship at the temple, God God favored them and God, God was with them. And here's the point in bringing up that Abraham was sought out by God in a place called Mesopotamia. The God of glory came to Abraham. Brothers and sisters, pay attention to this because this is part of your spiritual biography too. The God of glory came to Abraham not as a faithful follower of God, not as a Jew, not as one who resided at the temple or worshiped there, not as one who was seeking for God and hoping to be forgiven of his transgressions. God chose Abraham by his own sovereign grace while Abraham was in Mesopotamia. Now, if you know anything about Mesopotamia, about the Chaldeans, you know that they were what? They were moon worshipers. And if you know anything about Abraham, prior to God's grace in his life, Abraham was nothing but a a pagan idolater living in Mesopotamia. Long before he ever came to Haran, God came to him in a place a long ways away from Israel, from Jerusalem, and from the temple. In fact, Joshua 24.2 tells us explicitly that Abraham and his family served other gods. It was in Mesopotamia, in Ur of the Chaldees, in Babylon, He's going to bring up, Stephen is, in this first part of this message, he's going to refer to two two great entities, two great powers. He's going to talk about Babylon, and he's going to talk about Egypt. In any Jew's mind, Babylon and Egypt are about the two most unlikely places that any Jew were ever to, to, to think that God could possibly even set foot in or have anything to do with anybody. You see, this was not a holy man living in the holy land. And these men, when they think about Abraham, they, they had immense pride in being a descendant of Abraham as though Abraham were somehow... A, a, a man above men, he was, he was cut from a different cloth as though God chose him because he was a righteous man, as though he were somehow 
uh, inherently good and worthy, and therefore God looked from heaven and, and said, oh, there's my man. No. Why did God select Abraham? Why did God select you? Because he set his love upon you. Oh, then I must have been lovely. No. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who does good. There's none who seeks for God. All of us have gone astray, each one of us, to our own way. Beloved, this is the grace of God. And these men have missed it altogether as they dust off their holy garbs and put another one of God's servants to trial. In grace, God speaks the word to them again. They've heard it from Jesus. They've heard it from the prophets. They've heard it from Peter. And now again, God brings yet another man before them with the truth in his mouth, and they will judge him. You see, none of that was true about Abraham. They forgot that Abraham was cut from pagan cloth. One of the things I love about this whole section is if you, if you think through it carefully, it's not so much about Abraham. It's, it's about the God of glory and all that he, he does on behalf of an unworthy man and an unworthy people. It's about the activity of God. Abraham was chosen by God, not because of his goodness or his worth, but because God is gracious to the undeserving. And Abraham will be promised blessings, not on the basis of anything he's done, but on the basis of God's kindness to an undeserving man. Salvation, beloved, never hangs on the merit of men. But only on the grace of God which is why it's such a humbling thing to be saved. God, who is merciful, who gives salvation freely to positively undeserving people. Israel was chosen not because it was the biggest and the best of nations, but because it was the tiniest and the least of nations. Did you know that? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Yahweh did not set his affection on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples, but because Yahweh loved you and kept his oath which he swore to your fathers. That's it. God set his affection upon you, not because of anything found in you, but because of him, because of his grace, because of his mercy. He set his affection upon you. He made a covenant with you, and he is a God who is faithful to his promises. That's why Abraham stood before God in faith, and that, beloved, is why you stand. That is why you have the hope of heaven. Not because of what you do for him, but because of what he's done for you in the person of his son who lived your life, a life you could not live, 
weak as you are in the flesh, sinful as you are and broken from the inside out, and then he died a death in your place, a death that would have cost you eternity in hell. He paid for it in his infinite being on that cross so that you might be set free to have life and have it abundantly. Praise God. You see, it's about the grace and the faithfulness of God. God came to a pagan man who was destined for hell and destruction, who was not seeking for God and was not seeking for righteousness, and yet Yahweh made a covenant with him for good, promised him land, promised him offspring, and promised him a blessing. Well, let's continue on in the argument. Verse 3, and Stephen again speaks... God told Abraham what? Leave your country and your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. And then he left the land of the Chaldeans, that is Babylon again, and he settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you're now living. Just flip with me to, to refresh our memory. We're not going to be able to look, of course, at every text in length that, that is brought up in this but I want you to flip with me to uh, Genesis chapter 11. These are the things of which Stephen is now speaking. We'll pick up in verse 31. And Terah took Abram, soon to become Abraham, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, the, his daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldees, Chaldeans, in order to go to the land of Canaan. That is the promised land. And they came as far as Haran and settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years. And Terah died in Haran. And Yahweh said to Abram, go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make a great of, make of you a great nation and I will bless you to make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. Now, what has Abram done in any of that? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He's called out of where he was living and he is promised by God, I'm going to do these things from you or, and for you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. You are going to be a blessing. You're going to receive a blessing. Those who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so Abram went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him, Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go forth to the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem. Take note of that to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. And Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, to your seed, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to Yahweh 
who had appeared to him. You get the picture. He's called out. He's made all these promises. God brings him right up into the land, and he's, what does Abram find? Oh, the land's occupied. And he says, no, no, this is the land that I'm going to give to you. Look over at chapter 15. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram, for I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Again, there's no reference as to why his reward would be great. And Abram said, Oh, Lord Yahweh, what what will you give me as I go on being childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no Seed to me, behold, one born in my house is my heir. And then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. He's promised a son. And then God brings him out outside and, and says to him, Now look toward the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them, which of course we cannot. And he said to him, so shall your seed be. Now, these are key words right here, verse 6. Here's the first thing Abram has done at all. Then he believed in Yahweh. And Yahweh counted it to him as righteousness. What do you have? You have a man being considered, accounted righteous, not on account of anything that he's done, but on account of God's grace to him. All he simply did was trust God. He believed in God, which is why Abraham is the father of all who believe. He is the father of faith. And Stephen is affirming all of this. We can go back now to to Acts. Stephen is affirming all of this and assuring the Sanhedrin that the charges against him are are false. He's not speaking against Torah. He's completely with it. And that's what's important to see is where he is leading his audience. Abraham was a foreigner called from a foreign country, and God had him moved to this country, he says, in which you are now living. Actually, he never really even possessed it. Look at verse 5. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his seed after him, even when he had no child. Even Abraham, our father, who was promised this land... You see, if your relationship with God has to do with the land, if it has to be fundamentally borne out through the temple, well, Abraham, he wasn't a Jew when God called him, and he didn't come from Israel. In fact, he was made a bunch of promises that ultimately in this life he did not inherit. He didn't even get a square foot. He had the promise of it, but he had no possession of it. And while the land remains an important part of Israel's inheritance, these men needed to understand that God is not localized to Jerusalem or to Israel or or bound up somehow inside the temple. 
You remember the discussion in John chapter 4 between Jesus and the woman at the well? This is interesting because do you know where Shechem is? Shechem is right between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Jesus is there with the woman at the well. I pick up in verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you people say that it's in Jerusalem. That's the place where men ought to worship. Do you see the emphasis on the mountain, on the place? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, note these words, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father, what? In spirit and truth. There's nothing there that's geographical, is there? For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Then we have those famous words. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ, and when he comes, he will declare all things to her. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In other words, here is where worship begins. You see, God is not restrained to geographic locations. God transcends the temple. In fact, you'll, you'll remember, I'm sure, in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 18, Solomon, as he gives a prayer of dedication for the temple which he has built, he says, will God truly dwell with mankind on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which, with which I have built. You see, God is not one who dwells in the constraint of the temple. Abraham had no temple. Abraham had no land, and yet God was with him. He had no real estate in the promised land whatsoever. Neither did Isaac, neither did Jacob. In fact, it would take what? Another 400 plus 430 years before Israel will even occupy that land, which is where he goes in verse 6. But God spoke in this way that Abraham's seed would be sojourners in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years and I myself will judge the nation to which they will be enslaved and God said after that they will come out and serve me in this place. There's going to be a long interval before Israel would even enter the land, and now he's, he's turned from focusing on Mesopotamia and Abraham's calling to, to, to heading towards Moses. And he's, he's beginning to look at how, how they came out of, and I should say you know, Joseph as well, how they came out of uh, uh, that period with Abraham and, and into now another period. He's making a transition. And he wants us to understand again that Abraham's relationship to God was not based on the land or the temple, but it's based on the covenant of a gracious God who made a promise and Abram's faith in him. He comes to that covenant in verse 8. He says he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham was the father of Isaac 
and he circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Now, he is, he is stitching this thing together so cleanly, we almost don't see it happening. But he's saying, look, we've talked about Abraham. I mean, that's the tip of the root, right? And now he moves us into this period of the patriarchs. We now have 12 sons who will become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And you've got to ask this question as he gets there. What were these men? What, what was Abraham? What was Isaac? What was Jacob? Except that they were wanderers. They were sojourners. They were traveling around, and they were found in tents. And all of them, Hebrews tells us, were looking for a better country. They never possessed the land. But what they had was God as their possession. And therefore, they had hope. You see, they did not have the temple, but they had God. The audience to whom Stephen is speaking has the temple, but they have not God. See, Abraham is significant not because of the plot of land, but because he was rightly related to God by grace through faith in his promise. And the glorious beginning of the Jewish people begin with a man, a pagan moon worshiper, among a pagan people in a pagan land. And Stephen says to these men, look, you're clinging to your heritage and your ancestors as though somehow uh, they are your strength and your backbone and the very, the very soul of the, of the proof that God is with you. You're above all the peoples of the earth. We have Abraham as our father. Uh, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus says. Stephen says, you guys are majoring in the minors. You are straining out gnats to swallow camels. You are absolutely fixated on what is made with human hands. And you have made an idol out of Israel, out of Jerusalem. You've made an idol out of the temple. You've made an idol out of the law of Moses and out of the traditions and out of Moses himself. Do you remember that in John 6, that stunning moment when, when, when Jesus says, you know, work for the bread which endures to eternal life. And they say to him, oh, Lord, give us this bread and Jesus says, I am the bread. And, and, and they, they say to him, they say to him, uh, uh, Moses gave us the bread. And, and Jesus says to them, what? It wasn't, it wasn't Moses. The text says he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And they attributed that he to Moses. And Jesus has to correct them. Was Moses there leading when manna was being given? Yes, but was the manna from Moses? No, it was God. <laughs> They're missing it all the way along. They want to elevate the man. We want to elevate Moses. He's the guy. No, God's the guy. And the bread of life is not manna, but it's Jesus who gives life to the world. You eat from him and you will be full forever. They gloried in the temple rather than in the God of his temple. 
They gloried in the law rather than the giver of the law. They gloried in man rather than God. All of this talk then of of circumcision, even there, they relished in the notion of this covenant sign. And he says, yep, that's right. God gave circumcision as a sign to Abraham, and Abraham circumcised Isaac on the eighth day. And they're going, that's right, and I've been circumcised too. That's what they're thinking in their hearts. And where is he going to finish with this thing? You men of uncircumcised hearts. This guy's a clever lawyer, I'm telling you. He's setting them up. He's gradually increasing the pressure. He's putting them in the vice, and he's beginning to tighten it up. He's building his case very carefully. We need to get to the second evidence, and that is the evidence concerning Joseph, beginning in verse 9. He says, now that we're talking about the patriarchs, I, I have a few things I'd like to say about them as well. He says, let's talk about these patriarchs, these, these forefathers in whom you glory. What were they like? Well, he says the patriarchs, becoming jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. And yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he appointed him governor over Egypt and all his household. In other words, Joseph, though sold off into Egypt, became what? An exalted leader and a deliverer. It's instructive to think, you know, why, why didn't Stephen go to Isaac or to Jacob next in his speech? Why does he go from Abraham right to, right to Joseph? Well, I think the answer is clearly that Joseph is a type of Christ. You know what a type is, typology, the idea that there's a person in the Old Testament who, who anticipates Jesus. There, there are, he mirrors Christ. There are parallels between his life and Jesus' life, and he's going to draw parallels between the way that the father, uh, the the fathers, the patriarchs treated Joseph and the way that these men, the Sanhedrin, had treated Christ. That's what he's doing. And there are a lot of parallels between the life of Joseph and that of Jesus. Both of them were objects of the particular love of their father. Joseph was set apart, wasn't he, by his father and by God. You remember the multicolored robe that, that he received from his father. They were set apart as the preeminent son. Both had the promises of divine exaltation. Both of them were mocked and rejected by their families. Both of them were stripped, finally, of their robes. And both of them were sold for, for silver. Both were exalted after suffering humility. Both of them saved, in the end, their rebellious brothers. And it is said of both of them that what? People would bow before them. Do you see all the ties? And there are many, many more that could, could be made. One commentator put it this way, God was laying the tracks for the glory of Christ throughout redemptive history. That's what he was doing. Joseph. This exalted man of God. How did the patriarchs respond to him? They became jealous of Joseph and they sold him out to Egypt. And again, there, there's a name that no Jew can say without a very bitter taste in their mouth. 
Oh, God had called Joseph to be a leader and to be a deliverer, but the patriarchs, they were against all of that. And for jealousy, they sold him to be a slave and to be severely afflicted. And in parallel fashion, Jesus is going to be sold from jealousy into the hands of wicked men by his Jewish brothers. And Stephen is going to press this home by the end when he gets out there in the in that text that we saw earlier, he's, he's going to say to them, you, you, you did this. You did this very thing. You sold him into the hands of the ungodly. You rejected him in jealousy. You see, they did not recognize their Messiah. Instead, they mocked him and they murdered him. And so he is preparing them for his closing argument, if you will. Joseph, the preeminent son of the father, the patriarchs, well, they rejected him. And he would, of course, what? End up being the one who saves them in the end. And then he turns to this place of Egypt again, back to geographic locations, this place of bondage, this people who are, who are against God. It is, it is there that God is with Joseph. Do you see those words in the text? He was with Joseph. God was with him and rescued him from all of his afflictions, and he granted him favor. So it was with the Son of God. Verse 11. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it. And our fathers could find no food. They were in need. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. There may be another allusion in this. I'm not so confident as to say it's so, but there's this interesting dynamic here that when Israel goes down to Egypt the first time, did they recognize their brother? They did not. It's the second time they come down. And you think about, did, 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 did Israel receive Jesus? Did they recognize their own? Did they receive him when he came the first time? Will they know him the second time? He sent our fathers there the first time. And then on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. And then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there our fathers died. And that's really the punchline again. What is Stephen saying? He's saying, look, the, the history of the patriarchs is not this glorious thing that, that you think it to be. From the get-go, they got it wrong. They mistreated God's choice man. They stood against God's God's whole purpose in redeeming and rescuing Israel. The very man that God sent before them to save them, they sold off into slavery. They wanted to kill him initially, you recall that. And so he's showing them again, just as he did with Abraham and will again with, with Moses, that God is with his people wherever they are, even in a place like Egypt. He works the wonder of redemption through his chosen man in a place of Egypt. He's going to deliver his people from their bondage. 
And all of that looking forward again to what Christ would ultimately do spiritually for us who are in bondage to sin. Do you see how this all fits together? It's as though the author of this book knew the end from the beginning. It's an amazing thing. It really is. God is not restricted by national boundaries or constrained to temples made with human hands. And the foundational family roots of Israel, they're not planted in the promised land. They, that's not where they were originally planted. And nor did, did God's people grow up like, an, like, a, like a ficus and an indoor plant inside the temple. The roots of all of this are very different than the way these men are thinking about their relationship with God. They were birthed from Mesopotamia. They were enslaved in Egypt. And all they ever had of the promised land was a burial plot. Which is glorious in and of itself. Note the text in verse 16 is going to tell us they were buried in Shechem. They died and they were buried. Shechem, as I said, is in the promised land, and this is where the fathers are buried. They, they, and from there, they were removed to Shechem and placed in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. And that burial, beloved, was by faith in the promise. I don't know if you think about where you'll be buried much, but there was a thought that that land belongs to me. I know I don't own a square foot of it, but that land has been promised and God is faithful and you will bury me there. We will buy our burial plots there because God will fulfill his promise to us. Glorious stuff. Two points. God is much greater than the physical temple. He is taking their temple idolatry to task. His dwelling is with his people wherever they are. God is a God of grace who seeks and saves lost sinners and dwells with them. God is present with his people, whether in Mesopotamia or in Egypt. He does not call his people once they've cleaned up their lives, but from the place of helplessness and ungodliness, even as his enemies, God is gracious to the undeserving, as he was to Abraham. That's number one. And number two is this, that there has always been great hostility against God and against the truth in this world, even in religious circles and even from Israel itself, unthinkable as it is. You, the leaders of Israel, have stood against God and against his word and against his prophets and I'm here today with my dying words to call you to repentance. The patriarchs persecuted God's chosen deliverer. And they did not listen to his word. 
It's pretty easy, isn't it, to see how proud Jews would have heard these things at some surface level with their hardened hearts as, as though Stephen were speaking against the temple and against Moses and against the law and blasphemous things against God. And the fact is, he is the one who's faithful and true, and it is they who are all those things. And these are the conclusions that Stephen draws from the life of Abraham and of Joseph, and we'll have to pick up the argument here in a couple of weeks. Lord Jesus, we look to you again this morning with deep gratitude for all that you've done for us. Lord, you do not dwell in temples made with human hands, and there is nothing external and mundane and material that, that is, is anything to you but but, but, but regeneration, but new birth, but new life inside, a new heart, a new spirit, a heart that is attuned to love you, to follow you, to rejoice in you all the days of our lives. Lord, all of this we have received as a gift of your grace, and we give you praise and thanksgiving. In Christ's name, amen.